Where did Jim Crow come from in the United States? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title, read by yours truly. You can, of course, support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or the super thanks button under the video if you're watching on YouTube or at anchor.fm. Those are all great ways to support the show. Also, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo on all kinds of cool stuff. You, of course, can purchase one of my books. Just go to Amazon, put in my name, and all of my books come up. Or you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love the show. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube. All great ways to get more people watching and listening to the program. And I mentioned before that I've got the new class out at McClanahan Academy, Reading Thomas Jefferson. I've extended the sale out just a little bit longer. So if you want to pick up that sale and get a few bucks off, the lowest price you'll ever see it, get it now because it will never be this inexpensive again. So you pick up that class at mclanahanacademy.com, reading Thomas Jefferson. All right, well, let's wrap up the week with a really interesting topic, I think. And this is fascinating to me because for years, the dopes at many left-wing websites, and of course, Uh, When I say left-wing websites, I'm talking about uh, watch groups, for example. I'm not going to mention by name. Have criticized those who have said that segregation, Jim Crow, started in the North. That this is somehow uh, a false accusation against the righteous North and all of their beautiful things they provided for the United States, which is the glory of America. That somehow the South is always the evil other in America, and the North was always righteous and good. And again, this is something that they have listed, explicitly listed, as a reason not to trust people who are conservatives, Southern conservatives in particular, who point out the hypocrisy of the North. That was a lie, they say. Now, of course, this shows you how stupid these people are and how they have no real understanding of history because even leftists like C. Van Woodward in the 1960s pointed out that Jim Crow started in the North. But I think it's taken some time for people to come to this realization, particularly Northerners who have had this treasury of counterfeit virtue for a long period of time, that somehow everything that should be blamed this bad on America comes out of the South And everything is good came out of the North. Well, there was a book uh, that came out in 2019, four years ago now. Uh, But it hasn't really, I I mean, look, a lot of liberal academics and liberals have read this. When I say liberals, I'm talking about people in the North or progressives, whoever you want to call them. Yankees have read this. And uh, they've started becoming more interested in this. And the author of the book is Steve Luxenberg. He is an editor at the Washington Post. 
And the title of the book is Separate, the Story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to Segregation. Now, the, the fascinating thing about this is that Luxembourg has basically admitted that the entire system of Jim Crow originated in the North. That they were the ones that came up with the idea. They were the ones who came up even with the term Jim Crow. Southerners didn't invent that in 1890 or 1888 or 1880 or 1870. What's fascinating to me, too, is that for years I used to use a textbook. Uh, the Gold, was a, uh, Goldfield was the editor of the book. It was a college-level textbook. And um, Goldfield had written a, a pretty interesting book on uh, the war, the, pre, the, the, the uh, pre-war period, America Aflame. And uh, he talks about, essentially, that uh, the North should be to blame as much as the South for the, for the war itself. But in this textbook, Goldfield and the other writers had essentially concluded that after the war, the South was not segregated by race, but more by class. And that you didn't start seeing racial segregation in the South until the late 19th century. But that's not the case in the North. In fact, you started seeing segregation in the North as early as 1838, maybe even earlier. And the reason I say maybe even earlier is because uh, even though evidence exists that 1838 is the time that we have documented evidence of segregation in the North, it seemed to be pretty well established in 1838. And uh, we even have uh, evidence from uh, 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 Garrison's Liberator that uh, they were publishing stories about segregation in the North that were not coming out of you know, the South. These were stories of, of rail car segregation, which was the big issue, rail car segregation. And he actually made the point that you wouldn't have seen this in the South. You had smoking cars and non-smoking cars. And of course, uh, Southerners would often travel as they went to the North with their slaves, and those slaves would be seated in the cars with them. So they, they were integrated cars. And when they got to the North, uh, Northerners would force these white Southerners to go sit in the Jim Crow cars with their slaves. So I find this fascinating that here you have the North, which is supposed to be this you know, bastion of all good things, enforcing racial segregation. Because, as we know, and I've done a, a show on this not long ago, Slave North, we know that the North was not this bastion of all good things in America, and that they had their own skeletons in their closet, so to speak, and that Northerners in the 19th century were just as racist if we're going to use that term, if not more racist than Southerners, because they lived in a completely segregated society. You know, after the war was over in 1866, Connecticut, Connecticut, which is New England, Connecticut, rejected voting rights for black Americans. Now, they couldn't after the 15th Amendment in 1870, but in 1866, they did. So did Minnesota. I mean, there were, there were northern states that did this because they did not want uh, black Americans living in their states and being able to have any power in their states. And you're talking about states with a, with a population so minuscule that allowing blacks to vote in those states would have been, I mean, just an afterthought. You're not looking at a state like South Carolina or Mississippi where black Americans were the majority in those states. And so this was a much bigger question in those states uh, for a variety of reasons. But in, in uh, Connecticut... It would have been insignificant. You wouldn't have had, if people voted simply by race, you wouldn't have had any kind of power. Black Americans would have no power in Connecticut to change anything in Connecticut, really, or Minnesota, 
or any other Western state, Midwestern state, where they're not the right to vote. Uh, so I find it fascinating again, and this is, I mean, this is something that people don't want to talk about. Now, what I, what is interesting, of course, is the 1619 Project does, and conservatives don't like this. Northern conservatives, in particular, the real people that are that are upset about the 1619 Project are northern conservatives. And they're upset because it punches hole in the Lincoln myth and their treasury of counterfeit virtue. They don't like it. That makes them uncomfortable. That somebody's actually calling them out for being hypocrites. If you see, Because you see, they've had this position for years in the proposition nation. We were the good guys. We're the Lincolnians. We're the Republicans. We helped you. We did all these things. And so here comes the 1619 Project and says, now you really didn't do any of that stuff. You didn't believe in the proposition nation. Look at all the things that were that were uh, you know you were doing in the North, you don't really believe any of these things you talked about. And so it makes them very uncomfortable. It does. And I mean, look, as I've said before, there are some problems with the 1619 Project, but punching holes in the proposition nation myth is not one of them. Uh, they proposit- now, they do believe in it, right? I, I would say that the people that write the 1619 Project believe the proposition nation. They believe in what Lincoln said, and they take it to its logical conclusion which is where the West Coast Straussians get upset about the 1619 Project because they think that that can't, I mean, that's not true. Uh, But they, I mean, look, Lincoln reinvented America in 1863 and the 1619 Project people are just saying, yeah, okay, well, let's take him at his word. Let's take the Declaration at its word. And of course, we know that Jefferson really didn't mean what they're saying it meant, but this is what happens when you believe in the Lincolnian myth of America. So I want to get into this little piece. Steve Luxenberg actually published a piece in 2019 at the Washington Post, which, of course, he was an editor, where he gets into the history of Jim Crow in the North and in the 1830s. Now, to give the North credit for this, there was an attempt by uh, various groups in the North to try to end rail car segregation and Places like Massachusetts were able to do it by the late antebellum period. But, uh, again, as Woodward points out, when when the North threw a fit over segregation in the South, the South could say, well, look, you invented it. I mean, the the black codes, everything else, these things were happening in the North. Now, in in, in many cases, in some cases, the North had jettisoned these things by, of course, the post-war period. But in some cases, they had not. Northern states were still doing the exact same thing. Segregation was all over the place. We have to remember that Brown v. Board of Education was not focused on a southern state, but Kansas, which was supposed to be this northern state. It was, it was focused on a Midwestern northern state because you still had segregation, legal segregation in northern states, and you had de facto segregation in Boston until the 1970s. This is the very famous image, Staining Old Glory, where the White Amer- white Bostonians are hitting a black Bostonian with a U.S. flag? I mean, it a, it's just shows you the hypocrisy of Northerners who run around with this treasury of counterfeit virtue saying the South is the evil other of everything. It's embarrassing for them, and they shouldn't do it. They have to deal with their own skeletons before they can, I think, have any kind of ground to stand on with the South. But I want to... I want to read some of this piece. Uh, he begins with a little story about a rail car, um, about a, a travel through, uh, through Massachusetts. 
And he talks about this 1838, very beautiful day. The Eastern Railroad was going through Massachusetts. And uh, at one point, uh, he says, The next day, though, when Peabody's Railroad officially threw open its doors to the paying public as it opened its railroad the day before, the standard of equal rights was nowhere in sight. Instead, the Eastern's white and black passengers found separate cars awaiting them. Now, this is, again, uh, in the summer of 1838. So the day that they opened all the press, it looks like there's going to be uh, this uh, equal rights. In fact, Peabody, George Peabody, who uh, was the president of the, of the rail line, on the day the rail line opened, said this, uh, a whole people moving onward together in a career of unexampled prosperity, bearing in their front the standard of equal rights. This was the point of the railroad. But the next day, you had segregated cars. Luxembourg says, six weeks later, on October 12, 1838, an item appeared in the Salem Gazette telling the story of two drunken white sailors, Benjamin King and John Smith, charged with damaging the Eastern Railroad's track in retaliation for their ejection from the 6 o'clock evening run to Salem. Soon after departure, before the conductor ordered their removal, the crew had halted the locomotive and compelled Smith, who was the drunkest, to take his seat in the refuse or Jim Crow car at the end of the train. So the Jim Crow car is at the end of the train. This is where these drunken white sailors had to go sit with the black Massachusetts passengers in the Jim Crow car. So Luxembourg says, in researching the story of separation, which was the 19th century term universally used in print and conversation, separation, not segregation, separation. That's a fascinating term, too, because uh, back in the 1990s, there were some conversations about this. And you're seeing more, quote-unquote, separation now. There was just a college that has a now a black-only dorm on its campus. And this was brought up, and a lot of uh, uh, black students who I talked to back then would say, no, this isn't segregation, it's separation. We're willingly doing this. So segregation has this kind of negative connotation, but if you say separation, well, it's not negative. But here we have in the 19th century, they all called it separation. It wasn't segregation. You weren't segregating them out. It was separation. You're just separating them, people by the races. And uh, that was considered to be the norm throughout the North. He says, this was the earliest record I could find of the use of Jim Crow as a shorthand for discrimination in public accommodations. The earliest reference, the fall of 1838. But we know that it was there before that because, of course, they did this in 1838, but it's very clear that this was not the first time people talked about this or that they created this in 1838, it was already there. When it showed up in my digital digging, I was surprised. This was 1838 in the North, at the dawn of the railroad age, not 1888, when Mississippi passed the first law in the South explicitly mandating equal but separate accommodation for white and colored passengers on trains operating within its borders going beyond a Florida law enacted a year earlier. So not 1888, it's 50 years before that. The first law in the South that mandated it, that meant before that point, you didn't have any racial segregation or separation on rail cars in the South. You didn't have it. And there were rail cars in the South before that. They weren't separated. 
They weren't segregated, but they were in the North. This is the fascinating thing about this entire story. Why? Why is that? Well, we know that in the South, you might have had very stilted relations. There were, there were certainly rules, even in the antebellum period and the postbellum period. You, you would find that. Those rules started to break down in the, in the postbellum period, and that created some of the tension. In the antebellum period, of course, there were rules. And Southerners talked about this. But in, in everyday life, as Jimmy Carter, who I talked about earlier this week, pointed out, in everyday life, the races were around each other more than they ever were in the North because that was just the norm. There's um, a, a Faulkner short story that was made into a movie, Intruders in the Dust. And it's, uh, it's a really good movie. You can get it on YouTube. Watch it free of charge on YouTube. Uh, but it's it was it was produced a long time ago. You know I can't remember the exact year. But um, the story is that there is a a it's a Mississippi, of course Faulkner's fictional Mississippi, um, his his uh, his town. There was a a black man put on trial for murder, and he didn't do it. But he never said he didn't, and he he hired a lawyer to to take up the case, uh, a white lawyer and a young boy, a young white boy, and his grandmother actually figured out who did it. And it was a white guy. So the, the, the black uh, Mississippian was going to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. But I find it fascinating as they go and, you know, at the end of, this, of the movie, um, they, there's a scene where he comes to pay the lawyer. And uh, they show outside. And it's just very integrated. I mean, everybody's milling around together. Nobody's separated. None of that. You just have all these people in this area just kind of, I mean, like an everyday. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, and that was generally the South. Again, there were rules. There were there were there were fences, so to speak. But every day you had much more of integration, so to speak, than you did in any day in the North. The postbellum period was different, as you started seeing more and more segregation in accommodations. Though again, on a daily basis, you would still see this. I mean, this film was produced during the height of segregation. You would still see. Uh, you know, every day people milling around each other. But you didn't find that in the North very often and uh, because you didn't have many black people at all. He says, Not 1896 when the Supreme Court sanctioned Louisiana's equal but separate Railroad Act and its infamous Plessy v. Ferguson ruling. So Luxembourg was shocked by this. Wait a second here. I, I'm going to see Jim Crow. First time I'm going to see it is 1888 in the South. He finds it 50 years earlier in the North. Shocked. Shocked. Why? Because we don't do a good job of teaching these things. And particularly not in northern areas, because that would put the pressure back on them to recognize their role in this entire process in the United States. You have to have the boogeyman, the bad guy. And you have to have these idiotic Watch groups say things that this is incorrect when somebody mentions that segregation started in the North. Because they don't know anything. Again, it shows you how stupid these people really are. Now, Luxembourg is being historically honest here. Wait a second. I found this, and now I have to, I have to tell this story. So he continues. He says, The mention of Jim Crow was not something I had come across in the notable works I had read on northern racial prejudice during my early explorations. 
It's not something he had come across. He says, much later in rechecking my research, I would come across a footnote in a new book citing the Gazette article. He says, I was fascinated by this 600-word report from the Salem Police Court. The newspaper had used Jim Crow without explanation, as if the contemptuous label was already embedded in the train crew's lexicon, as if its readers already understood. How could that be? Because this is something that had been used in Massachusetts and Connecticut and everywhere else in New England and the North for a long period of time. Now, I mean... You have to uh, go back to the minstrel show where this comes from, but it had been used for quite a long time. It was something everyone recognized. It probably wasn't just in rail car accommodations. You probably had it in other accommodations. Look, uh, you had other public transportation in the 19th century. You had carriages that were like public buses, and I'm sure those were also segregated without question or separated. You had these things. So this was not something unique to the South when it happens in the late 19th century. And this is why Southerners were a little shocked, even in the 1860s, when you go back to the black codes that they had instituted. Their, their charge was, well, the North is doing this too. Why are we getting raked over the coals for it? Because at that time, Northerners needed black Americans, particularly in the South, to vote so they could win elections. Because you see, if they don't vote in the South, well, then they lose elections. It's all about power. You have to understand that everything that's going on here in the 1850s, the 1860s, the 1870s, the 1880s, this is about power. One way or the other, it's about power. Political power and the spoils that come with that. When you start seeing the kind of budgets that you had, the massive amounts of dough that was pumped into these state economies, or not really economies, but the coffers of the government taken out of the economy, so to speak, because you're taking, you're sucking it out of people, productive people, and putting it into the state coffers. When you do that, then you create a a cash flow that you can use to do whatever you want with. It's again, you look at the amount of money that goes into Washington D.C. It's all about power, and that's why all the groups go there. It's very easy for lobbyists and everyone to go to D.C. because it's right there, and it's about power. There was nothing different here in the antebellum period or the postbellum period. He says, The 1838 newspaper had used Jim Crow without explanation. Uh, as I just read that. By 1838, this, the phrase was well in circulation, thanks in part to the astounding popularity by, of Thomas Dartmouth Rice, a white entertainer who called himself the original Jim Crow. 1838, the phrase was well in circulation. Rice could not claim to be the first white man to sing in blackface when he bounded onto the stages of New England and elsewhere in the early 1830s, but he could soon claim to be the best known. He performed in a short, waist, waisted blue coat, threadbare gold pants, and mismatched shoes, singing, Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. Newspaper editors and letter writers picked up the phrase, routinely accusing politicians of jumping Jim Crow for giving up a principle too easy or abandoning their party's cause. So, 1838, the phrase is already well in circulation. People understood it in 1838 because of this minstrel show, which was around New England, and people thought that here's a guy in blackface, so Jim Crow then became synonymous with black Americans, and you have the Jim Crow car and Jim Crow segregation. This is the early 1830s. So by 1838, the late 1830s, this phrase is already in use all throughout the North. 
So even though there's only an example from October of 1838 talking about this episode where you have these couple of guys that are forced into the Jim Crow car, so to speak, by 1838, New Englanders had already been using this. What's also fascinating about the 1830s, you actually saw a pretty large surge, if you read Larry Ties in Pro-Slavery, pretty substantial surge in pro-slavery writings about this time in New England because there was an effort uh, by abolitionists and also by others to try to uh, take away any of this racial stratification or any type of, of uh, you know, uh, this rigid uh, system that had developed in the North or even some discussion of slavery. Now, we know in some New England states, They'd already started the process of gradual abolition, something the South was never able to do, but they had been doing it in New England. And so there was some discussion about, well, um, the abolitionists were making a lot of noise, and these northern theologians were now starting to extol the benefits in their mind, biblically, and in terms of Christian uh, treatment of slaves. So you see a lot of pro-slavery writings come out of New England in the 1830s, as the abolitionists ramp up their attacks on slavery, also in New England. It's a fascinating story. It shows the North and their influence in this entire discussion and how important it was for these theologians. And you have to remember, a lot of Southerners would send their children to Northern schools, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton, Harvard, right? That's where these people were going, and uh, Columbia. So they were going, which is you know one time King's College. They're going to these northern schools, and they're being confronted with people that would argue, and a lot of these were of course religious, religiously affiliated in the 19th century, that would argue these pro-slavery positions. And northern society was segregated. You see, so they call it separation, but you have all of this, so it wasn't seen as odd. This is the whole point. Larry Ties, in his book on pro-slavery, says, look, we can't talk about slavery and pro-slavery ideology as a Southern phenomenon. It's a national phenomenon. We can't talk about race as being an issue just in the South. It was a national phenomenon. And to only talk about it in the South is to miss the entire complexity of American history. And so I, I actually, again, I applaud Luxembourg for putting this piece out here. He says, Rice's racist caricature took on a life of its own. Figurines touted as the complete original Jim Crow showed up on tables at annual spring fairs in Massachusetts. Boston merchants carried music boxes that played Jim Crow, Zip Coon, and other tunes. A tour, of England in, a tour of England widened his reputation. It was apparently just a short hop from there to christening the car for black passengers and anyone else that railroad considered undesirable as a Jim Crow. At first, there wasn't much of an outcry, perhaps because people of color made up barely 1% of the Massachusetts population in 1840. But before long, the abolitionist movement had seized on the Eastern's policy of separation, making it the centerpiece of a rancorous political struggle, one with enduring implications about the deep roots of Northern racism, about the power of corporations, about the American legal system's often intolerant response to the long line of resistors engaged in an unceasing fight for civil rights and racial justice. So this is an amazing story 
And it's an amazing story. It shouldn't really be. Or, I mean, it should be logical that people would think this. Well, I mean, you know, the North actually had laws on the books in some Midwestern states to prevent blacks from living there. You had, you know, you, you had racism in New England. You had it. I mean, you, it was clear. This was there. This shouldn't be a shocking thing. But I think to people who have been reared their entire life that there is a good and a bad, New England is good, North good. And it's because, again, the North won the war, and you had people like Charles Sumner, you make America New England, you have that particular position. That wins, and so you have to have the boogeyman, which is the South. So I wonder if some of these organizations that actually say that this was an incorrect assessment of history are going to issue corrections if they're going to go out and say, well, you know, these people said this about Jim Crow and uh, we said that was wrong, but it was actually right. I wonder if they're going to do this. They won't. And I know they won't because their entire focus is on, of course, all the evil things in the South. And that became convenient because of the 1950s and 60s and what happened there. The South was the bad guys. But as we know, as we know, when you look at Boston in the 1970s, it wasn't, I mean, you still had de facto segregation in the 1970s. And now what we're seeing, of course, is a return to this. But it's not called segregation anymore. It's called separation. But as this Luxembourg piece points out, this is what everybody called it in the 19th century. Separation. This is fascinating. And more people need to know this story. I think when you do that, you take the sting out of so much of it, you, you create, you, you get rid of this false dichotomy in America that there's this and this. You can actually have serious conversations about these issues and not look at it as, well, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and we're going to bash on these people for doing something that these people already did. And did for a long period of time before you actually had a movement to get rid of it. Now, again, Massachusetts did lead the way in this. By the 1840s, they were starting to try to get rid of these things. But it took time in other parts of the North. Um, and I don't think that there's any any way other way of looking at it. Massachusetts might have led the way, but that didn't mean Connecticut or other New England states followed suit or any other Midwestern states. They just didn't. So this is a fascinating look at this. And again, it's the Washington Post. This is not published in some you know, right-wing publication. This is the Washington Post and a very important book that came out in 2019 in terms of, it's W.W. Norton. It's popular, right? It's not, a, not an academic book. This is a popular history. It comes out in 2019. It should be changing the way we think about this particular issue and taking all of this thing out of anything that you know, would be focused on the South. So... Hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to get me five times, hop on over to the Abbeville Institute and get that podcast there. I'll see you next week on the show. See you then. <laughs>